Diane once, they say, oh, Mrs. Whiskers, it's kind of hard to talk <laughs> to you. And I said, nope. If you keep coming, if I keep teaching you young ones, it'll be easy for you young parents. And mm. um, My tribe, they don't talk in their own language, nothing, just English, English. And I tell them that you guys ain't no white. You guys are Indians, and you guys are youths, and let's keep it. You know, let's don't forget our language. And I tell them, bear dance is coming. And I tell them, kuyagat, that means bear, kuyagat. Kuyagat. Uh-huh, kuyagat. Kuyagat. Uh-huh, that means a bear. He's coming. He's coming to our reservation. <laughs> <laughs> you better be able to talk you to him so he doesn't eat you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All my relations. Hi, everyone. I'm Adrienne Keen. And I'm Matika Wilbur. Welcome back to another episode of All My Relations. Today we have a packed episode for you on what may be the most vital conversation in Indian country. We are discussing the state of native languages. In fact, the UN declared 2019 the International Year of Indigenous Languages. To this they say, quote, languages play a crucial role in the daily lives of people, not only as a tool for communication, education, social integration, and development, but also as a repository for each person's unique identity, cultural history, tradition, and memory. But despite their immense value, languages around the world continue to disappear at an alarming rate. With this in mind, the United Nations declared 2019 the Year of Indigenous Languages in order to raise awareness of them not only to benefit the people who speak these languages, but also for others to appreciate the important contribution they make to our world's rich cultural diversity. The UN tells us that there are 7,000 languages spoken worldwide, 370 million indigenous people in the world, 90 countries with indigenous communities, 5,000 different indigenous cultures, and 2,680 languages they deem in danger. Yet, In spite of everything, there are still 150 Native North American languages spoken in the United States today by more than 350,000 people, according to the American Community Survey data collected from 2009 to 2013. Though most of these languages are on the verge of going to sleep, many are holding on and revitalizing. The Navajo language, for instance, is the most spoken Native American language today, with nearly 170,000 speakers. The next most common is Yupik at more than 19,000, Dakota with over 17,000, Apache with over 13,000, Kiras at also 13,000, and Cherokee with 11,000. However, the majority of Native Americans today speak only English. Of the roughly 2.7 million American Indians and Alaska Natives counted by the 2016 census, 73% of those aged five years or older spoke only English. Mm -hmm. Right. But we should add 
a big caveat with all this data. This data was hard to track down and multiple sources had different numbers. It's hard to trust anything gathered by a government agency and none of the statistics that we could find were collected by native people. So it's not clear in what we could find how folks determine fluency or what is deemed a dialect versus a language or even how these numbers were collected, which is a part of the larger problem. These languages aren't seen as a priority, and it's only been very recently that efforts have been made on a government level to sustain and support native languages. For hundreds of years, the United States has tried to actively erase and eliminate indigenous languages through federal policy, assimilation practices at government-run boarding schools, English-only laws, and more tactics of colonization. For instance, according to the National Library of Medicine, in 1887, the Indian Affairs Commissioner banned native languages in schools. Mission schools were required to provide all instruction in English, and officials directed that missionaries who failed to comply would not be allowed on tribal lands. The order was then extended to government-run schools on reservations, and these rules were in place well into the next century. Many of our grandparents and elders have stories of being beaten or punished for speaking their languages in school, and as a result, many of our parents didn't learn our languages, leaving our generation and the even younger generations to be the ones to reclaim and relearn what was taken from us. We both really struggle with the framing around indigenous languages as in a constant state of loss and danger and extinction and vanishing. There's so much urgency and we need to be moving quickly, but sometimes constantly drawing attention to the peril makes it feel, well, hopeless. But it is absolutely not hopeless. And so much beautiful, incredible work is happening in the world of language revitalization. And as we'll see later in this show, even languages that have been sleeping for a long time and haven't had a first language speaker for over 150 years can be brought back to having a vibrant community of speakers through hard, hard work, which is the case with the Wampanoag language, as is the experience with Hawaiian speakers, who in the 80s had only 50 first language speakers, and now they have over 5,000 native language speakers in Hawaii. The same is true in Mohawk territory, and with speakers in Pueblo country that speak Toa. Incredible immersion programs are revitalizing language, which I've witnessed firsthand all over the country. I mean, to name a few, the Nkusum Salish Immersion Program in central Montana, the Talawadine language in Northern California, the Arapaho tribe in Wyoming, language nest tribal colleges in the Great Lakes region, the Freedom Schools in Akwesasne, the Immersion School in Pachanga, tribal language programs in Kumeyaay, Comanche, Cheyenne, and Cherokee. It's so wonderful to consider that we are living in a time of language revolution. However, on a personal level, I often feel shame around this topic, especially when people ask me, Matika, do you speak your language? Uh, To which I have to bumble some sort of like a pathetic apology or (laughs) vituperative statement about the effects of colonization. My experience with speaking Lashutseed is a result of the policies that Adrian mentioned. My grandma was sent to boarding schools and punished for speaking her language. The town that I grew up in is incredibly racialized, and up until the 70s, there were signs on the walls that said no Indians or dogs allowed. I remember my aunties telling stories 
of being sent home from school for smelling like an Indian and being made fun of for sounding too Indian. We've been made to feel ashamed of our rich cultural selves, which resulted in many of our own people feeling afraid to teach that language to their babies. So, you know, I wasn't one of the ones that was lucky enough to hear my language around me casually spoken in public spaces. I think I only really heard our language spoken in ceremony or in private at Indian-only events. I'll never forget when I went to a more fluent nation. I, I was my first experience really uh, ever walking into a public place and hearing the language spoken as though it was the only language that was spoken in the, the place. It was like going to another country and I was in the Pueblo of Zuni and I walked into the gas station and the woman asked me how she could help me in her language. And it was like this huge, like, aha moment for me. <laughs> like this, this moment where I was like, oh my God, there's still tribes where, where their language is the first language. And it lit a fire inside of me, a fire really that gave me the courage and conviction to believe that our people deserve to hear their own language. Uh, alternatively, I remember when I was in Lovelock Paiute and I met Miss Helen and Miss Helen was blind and barely 95 pounds and she couldn't hear out of her left ear and she was telling me compelling story after compelling story she told me stories about red-headed giants and water babies and how to harvest pine nuts and where to find water in the desert and she told me about the intricacies of numu life she told me stories as if they needed to be told before it was too late and i remember when I asked her if I could take her picture and she laughed, she said, why would you want to take my picture? And I said, well, because Miss Helen, everybody in Paiute country told me about you. They said that you're the last carrier of the Lovelock Paiute language. And it would be my honor to take your picture. And Miss Helen started to cry. And she said, it's true. I'm the only one here left that I can talk to. And I remember when I left Miss Helen's that day and and I was sort of like had to pull over and cry in the desert, you know, I was so like devastated by um, by the realization that 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 this is a reality in our communities. And you know, shortly after that, Miss Helen passed away, and with her went the fluency of the Lovelock Paiute dialect. Man, it is heartbreaking to think of these stories. And I remember being in grad school and my friend Kendry, who's Clinkett, posted a Facebook post about her New Year's resolution or goal setting or something. Uh, but she wrote, when I think of my best self, I think of a Clinkett speaker. She probably doesn't even remember writing that. I think about it all the time because often when I think of my best possible self, I think of a Cherokee speaker. But no one in my family has spoke Cherokee since my great grandma. My grandma grew up hearing the language in her house, and her grandparents spoke primarily Cherokee, but she never learned to speak it. And my mom definitely wasn't ever exposed to it. And now there's me. So I really try to learn what I can, and the Cherokee Nation has amazing resources, but there's no one in my family I can turn to for help. And I live in Rhode Island, so it's not like there's a huge Cherokee-speaking community around. But when I think of my future fictional children or what I hope my future looks like, it involves learning much more of my language. Because honestly, I feel like the language contains so much of the cultural knowledge and worldview that I don't have yeah. and I wish I had. 
Um, well, that's exactly what Harry also we discussed when I interviewed him in Tahlequah. And before we jump into that conversation, uh, let's give the audience a little background information. Harry was born in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. His first language is Cherokee, and he began to learn English when he was six years old. He's a graduate from Bacone College, and he earned a master's from Northeastern. And he has spent his life as both an artist and a prolific language teacher dedicated to teaching Cherokee. He's authored books on the Cherokee language and is widely celebrated for his artistic contributions. I came to discover Harry through my friend Sedelta because he's her dad. <laughs> um, <laughs> and when I was in Oklahoma recently for Project 562, I made a special trip to Tahlequah to photograph him and interview him for this segment. And he speaks like a real elder, you know, and I appreciate his perspective because he reminds me of my own elders, uh, which is such a gift. When I first started the language program, it was uh, I was under the Cultural Resource Center, and uh, it was like there were a lot of people really in- interested. And one thing that I, I I have to say at this point is, if you want a language to survive, the people have to take ownership. You know, the tribal government's not going to do it. It's got to be people within the community. If they if they really want it, they got to take ownership of that language and 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 bring it from home, the communities. You know, academically you can't do it because it doesn't carry the same weight in the uh, academic world. With us native people, I think we have to um, look at it beyond just uh, as a political uh, game and things like that. It's got to be something that we want as a people, you know, and it has to be something that's going to be uh, important to us uh, as a community and as as, like I said, individual uh, people to take it as a as a need, not a want, but a need to to learn the language, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's the only way it's going to survive, I think, especially our language. We we're at a point now where uh, when I first started the program, I I kind of looked at it as a renaissance of language learning. You know, I I really saw this as a as a revolution for language learning at that point because there were so many people within that area I was with that really were supporting this, this program, this language program initiative that we were looking at. What would you say the state of the language is right now? I mean, how, how many Cherokee speakers are there? How many pe- learners are there? And I mean, you've dedicated much of your life to this, right? Like you studied it in, in grad school. You wrote, you've written books about this topic. You're currently working on an, another book about, this, about mm-hmm. the Cherokee language. And so maybe you have a strong handle on on the state of the language? I don't know exactly how many uh, people we have, but I don't think it's 10%. It's probably less than that, you know, mm-hmm. that are fluent speaker. Uh, by fluency, I mean people that can make complex uh, sentences, complex stories they can tell, you know. Uh, it's it's not someone that says, oh, or mm-hmm. someone that says, you know, those words like that, those aren't fluency. To me, if you want to be fluent, you're going to be able to make complex sentence structure in the language, you know, mm-hmm. and be able to tell stories in a way that uh, you can um, talk about what happened last year, two years ago, three years ago, ten years ago, what's going to happen in the future. All these things that that takes the brain to work in the complex setting, and that to me is fluency. And as far as 
our people, what, what state the language is in, it's, it's in pretty bad shape. You know, it's pretty bad shape with the number of people we have in, in our tribal citizenship. So, uh, and if, if nothing's done, this is almost like the last lap in trying to get something going, I think, from my perspective, you know, because people that speak the language are in their 70s that are fluent, 70s, 60s, very few 50s, very few 40s, and very few 30-year-olds, you know. Uh, I, you probably count uh, your fingers on your two hands in a 30-year-old, mm -hmm. as far as speakers are concerned, fluent speakers. 40, you may have um, uh, 100, 200, 300, 400, maybe 50s, a little bit more, 60s, 70s, and then you're mm -hmm. losing them, you know. And we're losing speakers every day. We lost, in fact, we lost our last model lingual speaker that we were aware of two weeks ago. Mm. Mac Van just passed away, and um, he was as far as tribe knew, he was the only monolingual person today. You know, there was uh, a study that came out of Portland that some language student in Portland, I think it was, and in, uh, in National Geographic, they had done a um, kind of like a study on where language losses were the greatest. And Oklahoma was one of, one of the hot spots for language losses because of the number of uh, tribal groups we have in Oklahoma. And it was an alert for me. I said, man, I, I knew that though already because, man, a lot of our tribal people, you go up here at the uh, uh, northeastern corner with Ottawa's, Quapaws, Wyandotte, Seneca, and all Islands, and all those guys, I don't think they have the language left, you know, Peoria's, Quapaws, and those guys, you know. And then Western Oklahoma, you have the Cars and Peoria's and those guys that maybe they don't know their language. You know, they, there's just a massive loss of languages. You know, so we're fortunate we still have enough people that we could make things happen. Mm -hmm. But then again, it has to be community wide, and people have to want it. You know, mm -hmm. if they don't want it, it's not going to happen. Yeah, in in some of your poetry, you say Cherokees exist only if they speak Cherokee. Mm -hmm. Can That's a hard state to make, to make. People don't like that. I bet. They don't. <laughs> I, I mean, I've, I've, had, I've said that in, in um, classes. I've said it in, in different uh, workshops I've attended over the years. You know, that, and, it, and it's, if you don't think in that, that language, I mean, you can't honestly say you are that particular group of people. You know, I can say I'm white. And I, because I speak their language, I understand every the concepts that they have. Well, I say every concept, maybe not, but I understand them well enough that I can get by. Now, if a person is able to speak Cherokee, they see a whole new concept, ideology, worldview that that doesn't exist in a white man's world, in a white man's English, you know. So it's hard to, for me, it's hard to not see it that way, you know. It's just the idea that's always been in my head. You know, you you gotta be who you say you are. You know, a, a Muscogean is a Muscogean because he speaks Muscogean. Cheyenne is Cheyenne because they speak Cheyenne. That's what identifies us as individual peoples. You know, that's the genesis of who we are. That's the center and essence of who we are. The language because I could pass for an Asian, I could pass for a Crow, Sioux, anybody in the tribal group, but when I say to me, that's that 
tells me, hey, he, he speaks that language. He understands that language. He knows what he is and who, who he is, you know. That's where I think the, 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 that when I say that, because it's, it's pretty, it is harsh, you know, and I know that. And, and, the, and even my kids, they, they, they say it's harsh, you know, and, and it is. But that's the way I was brought up. You know, the, the old people always said, you know, you got to be able to speak language to be able to identify yourself as Jalagi, you know, or uh, Gadua. Language is important. It's an important part of who we are. Probably the most basic uh, importance of who we are mm -hmm. is that, that language because, man, I mean, every one of us is given a language to speak, you know. Mm -hmm. That's the old saying that Gadua, that we have our neck call ourselves Gadua, but there's names like Cherokee, UKB, you know, Kituwa Band, and uh, Eastern Band. They're all misnomers. You know, they're, they're just given to us by other people. But if we really got down to it, we like, I admire Lakota people for changing their names to Lakota instead of Sioux, you know, uh, different tribal groups, Dene, for instance. Uh, they're not Neville, they're Dene, you know. And I think we as Cherokee need to um, change our names to Gadua, which is the real name for us. You know, old people have always said Gadua, Idiyanwea, you know, we're Gadua Indians, you know. So, uh, to me, that, that would be a significant change for the attitude of our uh, native people, Cherokee people, I think, so-called Cherokee people, if we all change our name to Gaduas, Eastern Gaduas, mm -hmm. Cherokee Gaduas, UKB Gaduas, you know. Uh, to me, uh, we're, we're one and the same people, mm -hmm. you know. So that's where we should put the umbrella over us is Gadua people, you know. Mm -hmm. And then we can honestly say we're all, all the same people. And we speak the same language. We use the same celebrated square root, and so it's it's no big deal to do that. I mean, for me, from my perspective, but from political, difficult. it's difficult. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you. You know, um, white folks are always asking me. You know, like, well, you know, I heard you. I heard what you have to say today. So, what can I do to become a good ally? Uh -huh. And my response is always, you know, like, first of all, that's your work, not my work, right. is to yeah. learn what that means. Right. But, yeah. but if I was to really start thinking about it, I think there's a few things I know. I right. know that if our kids know, our indigenous kids know the creation story of the place that they are, they're 80% less likely to want to commit suicide. Right. So there's something very powerful and profound to teaching right. our creation stories. And right. to do that, you have to speak the language. Right. And right. so that means that all of us, no matter where we're from, have a responsibility to learn the creation story and language of the place that we're occupying, right. whether we're indigenous or not. Right. And that now I know a lot of folks, especially Pueblo people, that mm -hmm. would say, you know, we don't teach this language to right. non-Pueblo people. Right. And I respect that. Right. That's their yeah. decision to make. That's right. Yeah, but I also know, like, in my community that th these languages are recorded, mm -hmm. they're taught in universities, right. there's dictionaries, the mm -hmm. content is there and right. available right. if you have the heart and the mind, mm -hmm. that good mind to right. learn that and uh -huh. pick it up. And, and I right. think that, that that's important, mm -hmm. and, and that's partly why we're doing this episode, right. is, is so that we can have that discussion with people like yourself mm -hmm. and right. others from around the country, mm -hmm. because... You know, the state of our languages is a state of emergency. It is, yeah. You know, it, it, it's going to be too late. Uh, like I tell people today, uh, one of these days you're going to sit back and say, man, we should have done that 10 years ago. You know, that that time's too late when you start saying that, you know. Now it's the time to take action. Now it's time to do something. Is there anything else that you would like to address before we close? Well, I would just like to see more um, natives get involved 
when the true meaning of what language is, you know, real understanding of what what it means to have your language, you know. It's something that's uniquely theirs. Mm-hmm. Every tribe has a unique language, and that's something that should be maintained and kept. It's a sacred thing, you know, it's a sacred thing. And once you lose that, man, it's free fall. You don't know where you're going, you know. You don't know where you're going. Mm-hmm. You're flown in the air and no language. No ideology, no philosophy, no worldview. Just like everybody else. Homogenized. <laughs> Gaduas or Cherokees, we have been so colonized that a majority of us have become so assimilated, so acculturated through the Western concepts and ideology that we have become desensitized to our own history, language, and culture, that we deny our being and become one of them, the melting pot of America. One day we may have to define ourselves as Gurua Cherokee American, much like Irish Americans, Italian Americans, etc. Listening to Harry is hard for me on some levels because I completely agree with what he's saying. It's so true that so much of who we are as Gadua people is tied into our language. And I respect him so deeply and feel so grateful for the work he's done in revitalizing and teaching Cherokee language. But I don't want to think that I can't call myself a Cherokee person until I'm fluent in our language. I think I can work and we all can work and we can make sure that the language is a goal. But when I was raised thousands of miles away with the last speaker in my family two generations ago, I really think the best I can do is try and hope that my ancestors can recognize that. But his points are so important. Knowing vocabulary and how to say, hi, how are you, is not enough. And relying on elders to preserve their knowledge is not enough. Community buy-in is necessary, and I think many Gadua people are complacent thinking that there are so many of us, someone must be doing that work, and the language will be okay. But listening to Harry definitely increases the sense of urgency and weight of importance I feel in my own language journey, and I'm just so grateful for him. Next, we bring our conversation to the Lushootseed Language Program in Puyallup. They offer us an example of what language revitalization looks like on the ground, navigating grants and community and the excitement and challenges of that work. This conversation is back in our studio space in Tacoma, which is on the ceded territories of the Puyallup tribe. Honoring the relationship of whose land we were on was really important to us in speaking with folks from Puyallup. We talked with Archie Cantrell and Amber Hayward. Archie is Puyallup and has worked for the tribal community since his days right out of high school. He worked for the tribal fishery and youth center prior to his work with the Puyallup language program. Whether it's salmon, the youth, or Lushootseet, Archie's career and perspective exemplifies a passion for conservation and education. Amber Hayward is Puyallup and Salish and is the director of the Puyallup language program. Prior to her language work, she worked in the tribe's historic preservation department. Amber strives not just to preserve the Lushootsi language, but also to create materials and promote its usage in classrooms and among the younger generations. The first voice you'll hear in the conversation is Amber talking to us about her journey into the language program. 
I met uh, one of our tribal historians, Judy Wright, who worked in historic preservation. She kind of recruited me and I was like, yes, I will be there as a research assistant. Um, so I got exposed to the tribal history, the archives, photos, going to research at museums, repatriation, um, and then just working with an amazing human being who was uh, my director at the time. And she just poured so much into me about our culture and passing it on to the next generation and making sure we preserve everything um, in the proper way and not necessarily shedding uh, light on particular uh, people or just making it fair and just stating the facts about the the tribal history. Um, and so she really instilled all of that in me. And I used to see the, the tribal language written in the documents and her and I had no idea what that was. She would always say, I don't know anything about the language. You know, um, I just, I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to know either, but it's here and we need to preserve it. Uh, and so I had worked with her. She retired. I felt like it was a good time for me to move on as well. Um, and so uh, I transferred to the language program, kind of doing the same work with, um, you know, researching the, the first language speakers of our land in this area, um, trying to collect audio. Um, and then our uh, council uh, con contracted a language consultant, Zalmaiza here, who's been working with the Lashutsi language for um, since he was 11 years old. Um, he's been teaching it. He's worked with first language speakers. He's now uh, a linguist. And so he came with this new um, method of, of using and revitalizing language when formerly a lot of tribes teach it. And so he's like, we can't teach it because it doesn't produce speakers. And so this kind of, this is a cat, peesh, peesh. This is a dog, squirrel bite. You know, it doesn't produce a speaker because we're not teaching uh, language that we use every day. You know, how many times do you introduce yourself all day long? You know, and he, so he was like, okay, do you make coffee? And I'm like, or drink coffee? I'm like, yes, obviously. <laughs> so he's like, I want you to make coffee in La Chute okay? You need to wash your hands in Lashutsi. How many times a day do you do that? So he brought this new method to us um, of using the language, and it completely changed all of our lives because we had all formerly worked with the old method that doesn't produce speaking. Um, and so at the time, I have uh, two, two sons, and at the time, one was, I think he was like seven. The other was a newborn. Um, and so I got to test this language out on my kids mm -hmm. and in my home. Mm -hmm. And so my little newborn baby, he's actually heard both languages his entire life. Mm. Um, and so not just using it at work, like Archie was saying, it's a part of your life now. You have to speak it at home. How can we call ourselves, you know, language teachers or trying to revitalize the language when we're not even speaking it outside of work or outside of the classroom so we have to completely bring that into our home. And a lot of times we get resistance uh, from our own family members, for sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so one part of language revitalization is just speaking it, you know, not based on somebody else's reaction to you. Mm -hmm. um, because sometimes the people closest to us give us the hardest time. Uh, so in my family, my own, you know, mother and cousins, what are you saying? They make fun of you, you know, got labels all over the house. What does this say? And, um, and just continuing to keep speaking the language. And here we are five years later using this model. And guess what? Lots of my family members can speak yes. now <laughs> because you have no choice. Mm -hmm. And that's with, uh, two children in the house 
nobody to interfere. They're going to speak Lashootsi. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mommy says so. (laughs) (laughs) And so what is the the difference in that model? It's like it's uh, is there a name for that type of learning or that style of teaching and and um, we borrowed the model from the Maori people who are very successful mm. in language revitalization in their community. Uh, they created language nest. And so they were the ones that started this. So that's a part of what, how we produce speakers in revitalized language is creating a physical location in our lives that you are not allowed to speak English. Mm. So at work, it's very hard because you get interruptions all day or you have to speak with people that speak English so our language nests are in our home so again it's off work time so usually we start with the bathroom or the kitchen area where you designate one location and you're not allowed to speak English Mm. could be any other language but English Mm. so when you're in that space and somebody is not speaking Lashootseed or another language it's your responsibility to speak Lashootseed so my kids would speak English to me and there, and I would only speak back Lashootseed, and they would get really frustrated, you know. And I'm like, well, I'm in the bathroom, you know. So if you want to talk to me, then you wait till I'm out. So then that that helps to bring people along with you or your kitchen area as well. Um, so that's a part that we did borrow from the Maori people. Uh, another part is self narration, and so you don't have to have somebody else around to speak it to say, well, I don't have anybody to talk to, so I can't can't speak it so self-narrating we talk to ourselves all the time I imagine I do but um (laughs) so you're literally self-narrating uh the everything that you're doing all day long so we call that we call those domains um and then uh, increasing our language use to an hour or more a day so Mm -hmm. not sure that they necessarily have names language nest for sure does but Mm -hmm. uh one of my favorite language teachers is a fellow named Kumukaeo Izan. He's from Hawaii. And he teaches in the style of Kialaleo, which is a language immersion that is uniquely different because it never uses the written word to teach, uh, but rather uses right language in its purest form, right, in the, in the tongue, raw tongue. And uh, he says that the pedagogy is different also in the sense that when we begin to understand indigenous languages, we realize that our our languages use um, verbing instead of nouning, and that our, we find from that practice that we have a sense of interconnectedness uh, that's built into our language. And so, when we separate like the the ourselves from whatever we're talking about by using nouning then it, it causes us to have a sense of independence and that, that that sense of independence is is so opposite our way of life that it makes sense that our, our entire language uh, be, you know, surrounded around verbing. Have, have you, do you guys ever talk about that with around here? Yeah, that's exactly how Lashootseed works. Mm-hmm. Um, and then look at what we do. We, we take English ways of learning, which is nouning, and then we try to put it into our tribal languages when we try to teach. And so, again, that, that old method that people use, this is a dog, this yeah. is a cat. Where does that come from? It comes from English, you know? And so we do have ours is verb-based as well. And so when we try to um, teach the language, again, at, at, he is a language teacher. He has to teach it. But, again, it goes back to this, well, how did you learn English? Did your parents sit up there with with flashcards and and do that to you? No, you just spoke it. 
you just spoke it. And so that's why we have to, to change our methods because again, it's an experience. When you're when you're speaking language, it's an experience. It's your your verbing, you know. Um, and so, again, changing that, you know. And Archie said, there's stuff that we get translations for all the time, trying to convey English concepts to Lashutzi, and we're literally like shaking our heads, or you know, slapping our foot. <laughs> it is just the weirdest stuff. That I'm like, do you really think our ancestors would have talked like that? You're completely trying to give us an English concept. And you're trying to put it in Lashutzi. Do you see how bizarre this is? You know, and so it's so hard to have people like, oh, you don't have a word for hello. Well, no, that's not how we would greet each other. And they so badly want a word for hello or welcome. That's probably like the we just Mm. talked about this on Friday. Literally just just (laughs) talked. because that's an English concept. Yeah. That's not traditionally how our people would greet each other. We would say, how are you? Where are you from? Who's your family? Mm-hmm. So we have to explain, well, we would express this as, as Joe Ilcha atizas lab dubitsit, or as Joe Ilcha atizos We are joyful that you have arrived. Mm-hmm. And then we get, well, that's so long. <laughs> oh, God. You know? <laughs> We're like, oh, I'm sorry, this doesn't fit into your, you know, you asked mm-hmm. me for how we would say that. Sorry, it doesn't fit in, you know, a few little words, but that's how Lashutzid works. Yeah. So we deal with that quite often. So just educating people on, you know, or they want to put stuff in phonetics so non-natives can read it. Or, you know, I'm like, well, what are, who, do, who are we doing this for then? You know, because we have a whole set of kids at the tribal school that can read that. We have, you know, X amount of people in our community that can read it. And eventually, year by year, as we keep increasing speakers, our people are going to be able to read that. Mm -hmm. So, again, who are we putting this in phonetics for, you Mm -hmm. know? And so it's just something we won't do. So. Mm. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So how many language speakers do you think, like, are left in, in the Northwest? Um, so for the Lashutsi language, there's approximately 13 tribes that speak this language. And the elders were very adamant that it is the same language. It mm-hmm. is not different. Um, and so you have what you call a first language speaker, which is a person who heard this language spoken, and that was their first language. Then you have heritage speakers who heard a language growing up that wasn't the dominant, you know, like English language However, they weren't able to use it as much. Maybe they understand it, but maybe they don't speak Mm -hmm. it. So at this point in the Puyallup community, we have no first language speakers Mm -hmm. alive. We definitely can't speak for other tribes, the other 13 tribes, uh, but we are unaware of first language speakers that that was their very first language. Um, there are lots of heritage speakers around, uh, for sure. Absolutely, they have heard it growing up, but maybe they weren't able to express, you know, and speak Lashutzid. They remember words here and there. So uh, Lashutzid has never left our communities. There are just none that we are aware of that are first language speakers. And so for folks who aren't familiar, I mean, this is something that runs so deeply in all of our communities, this need to uh, have a focus on the language and revitalize language. But for folks who don't know, why do we have to do this? Like, why don't we all speak our languages? I would say, um, obviously, the influence of English. I mean, it's it's. I mean, everywhere we go and everything we see is all in English. 
Um, you know, there was a period, you know, during the boarding school era where people were scared to speak their language and our elders were scared to pass on their their knowledge of the language because they were afraid that their kids would get beat for speaking it. So now kind of fast forward here. So there, there's that generational gap there where we, where people just did not want to speak Lashootseed. And you kind of fast forward because, you know, the way I think about it is like, you know, why, why are some of the things that we did traditionally important and, and, and carried on? For example, I'm going to use the example of fishing. Well, well, we still fish and people are still very good fishermen and they still understand how to do that. But why are they doing that? Well, because there's monetary value you know, in, in some of our, in some of our cultural things, there's not very much monetary value in language. And it's even, what makes it, I think more, even more tough is that, you know, we have a limited amount of speakers. So even if you took the time to learn it yourself, you're still not able to really communicate with a lot of society. You know, there's not really a, uh, an instant, there's no instant gratification in learning language besides the fact of just a pure desire to or our passion to want to do it yourself and that's something that we battle with and uh i i get the opportunity to teach language in chief leshai school and one of the hardest things probably the hardest thing is to figure out how do we get these kids that are speaking language in this classroom to feel comfortable speaking it anywhere else and i'm even talking about as far as like you know just the hallway you know that you, you as soon as you talk try to talk to a, a one of your students in the hallway they look at you like you're speaking some other completely different language oh because they're like you know they're they're super super comfortable in the classroom i think because it's in that setting but as soon as you know we try to introduce stuff into the home the fact of the matter is it's just easier to fall back on english mm-hmm. so but every time we make the decision to fall back on english we miss out on reclaiming something for the shoot seed. So I guess I, in short, my short answer would be there's just no instant gratification. You don't get paid. You don't get glory. You just get to, I don't know, be a more educated native American. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I also think there's like some embarrassment and shame there, right? Like my nephew has been taking the shoot seed now for four years. He's been in, taking it since seventh grade. He's now a sophomore. And um, this kid can pray in the shoot seed. He can have full conversations in the shoot seed. He, um, but you would never know it. He, because he will not speak. He will not, he understands everything that's said and he'll translate for me occasionally when it comes up, but he won't, he won't ever admit to it because he's so embarrassed. And um, one time we were in this, lo- this lot, we have a lodge at our house and, um, and it was time for the men to pray, and there was only three boys in there, my nephew, my cousin, and another one that was younger, so he's the oldest. And I was like, um, one of you has to pray. And so, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so he sat there and prayed for like 20 minutes in Lashutsi. And I was like, wow, this little fucker. <laughs> <laughs> I knew he knew that. <laughs> you know, wow. but, um, but he, won't, he won't ever, like, he's embarrassed because of this, the sounds are different than English because of like the, the pressures I, I think that we have in society to, to fit in, in, a, in mm-hmm. the dominant culture. And because, you know, especially when you're a teenager, you want to feel accepted and you want to feel a sense of belonging and, 
And, um, you know, if we don't have these sort of like radicalized spaces of inclusion where our kids feel really safe to express themselves, you know, then then maybe that is the reaction, you know, what you're talking about. And I don't I don't know. I've I've really wondered about that quite a bit myself, but. As I'm slowly, like, I know just a handful of words in Cherokee, like not even um, very many, but I make these, I have these aha moments of how much is encapsulated in the language that isn't just the word for basket or the word for coffee or whatever it is. And so I'd love to hear from you what is held in our languages besides just the words for describing things in our, our space. I think Lashute Seed is really cool because there's just so many ideas that you can convey in Lashute Seed that there is no way to say in English and kind of vice versa. There's some, there's some, some things that, you know, some ideas that we try to get across in English that we just have no way to say in Lashute Seed. And, and I think it's really interesting that this especially happens like when there's like, like hurtful type of words, mm-hmm. you know what I I think uh, I was watching a a documentary and it was uh, had Vi Hilbert talking and she used the quote that you jab with English and you caress with Lachute seed. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a, I thought that that was a really cool quote because it's it's completely true because you know we don't really have a lot of like curse words. We don't really have a lot of ways to identify being like annoyed like you know or, or things like that so I just think it's really cool like as I have learned a little bit more of the shoot scene myself that you know you kind of start to draw these like oh it's kind of weird that man in English we got you know a million ways to call somebody a bad name but in the shoot seed we you know we, we don't really have that so I, I think that that's a pretty cool like I don't know juxtaposition <laughs> yeah of the of the languages Archie says really well about how the language comes from the land. I think he should talk about that too. It's, it's very true. You know, when we, when we first started working on this, on, on language, uh, our consultant came up and it, the phrase he, he, he uses is, The Tuashutsi language comes from the land. And it's incredibly true because I'll give some examples of some words. Like our, our word for ocean is holch, holch. Well, what sound does the ocean make when it's crashing up against the the rocks? Holch, holch. It's really cool. Uh, the word for snow is bako, bako. Because when you're walking in it, it your 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 heel hits first, and it's like bako, bako, <laughs> bako. It's really the word for crow. Ah, ah. Ah, ah. Well, why does it say that? Well, or why is it the word? Because that's exactly what the crow makes. That's the, that's what it says. And I mean, there's just several examples of of that type of like the the language really comes from the land. I mean, there's there's the words are either what the animals make or what the sound makes when you know things are hit together or just the sounds that nature makes. I mean, it is it is crazy it's 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 remarkable Mm. i like that i like that a lot Mm -hmm. yeah it's a so what is it what is your day-to-day lives like to 
in, in this process? So um, you talked about having a space where kids or adults feel comfortable speaking with shoot seed. So I think that was the first area that we started with was creating spaces where the shoot seed is welcomed, where it's you feel comfortable speaking it. And that took four or five years to mm-hmm. do that because we saw in the schools where you had, um, we started going in and, and everybody was excited. And then you had some staff, okay, well, that's enough Lachute seed. We need to get back to, you know, work here. And so what does that do to a kid that shuts a kid down, right? Um, we So again, having to work through that and, you know, those teachers have since gone on and moved on um, to where the school is now, like when you apply as a teacher or staff, this is a bilingual school now, you know, do you, are you okay with working at a school where another language is spoken? So now like these little steps that have, you know, brought us to creating comfortable environments, you know, we would come in, we have nothing to lose. This is our job. We get paid to speak with shoot seeds. So we go into the school again, we don't have anything to, to hold us back. So we really opened those gates to walking down the hallways and speaking the shoot seat and going, just popping in classrooms and being like, you know, and then shut the door, you know, (laughs) Um, drive by. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. To creating this environment where now you walk down the hallway and you can say that to anybody and they will respond to you back in the shoot seat, whether they're saying it correctly or not. That's we don't we aren't worried about that. Mm -hmm. Um, Eventually it corrects itself. Um, So in our community as well, like in our administration, adults are a little bit different than kids. So uh, we get quite a bit of resistance with adults. We would go, we literally made a video about it, about when people see us walking down the hallway, what they do, they like take off running the other direction (laughs) or or like go back into their offices. Really? Oh yeah, for sure. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) We think it's funny. But again, if we stopped every time somebody uh, gave us a reaction, we wouldn't grow the language. So um, creating an environment where the shoot seed is uh, accepted and where our kids are able to speak it and not feel embarrassed. Um, We've worked, again, like about five years trying to create these environments where that's okay. So it's big work you all are doing. It's huge work. Adrian. My name is Akira Estelrond. I am from the Ganyagahaga Nation at Akwesasne and Wolf Clan. Hi, my name is Savannah. I'm Swampy Cree from Treaty 5 Territory in northern Manitoba, Canada. Kia ora, all my relations podcast whanau. Ko Jonathan Hegler, Taku Ingoa, ko Nai Takato Te Iwi, ko Aotearoa Tēnei. Aloha mai kako. My name is Vanessa and I'm calling from Hawaii. We say all my relations as hi hi. Mama winning which means um we are all siblings. Um we are all brothers, sisters and siblings. Janaganan is Potawatomi for all my relations. All my relations in Arawakan Pain. Um Kaolelo Hawaii, Hawaiian language is ko'u ohana a pau, um, which literally translates to my family till completed, till done. So until you can finish counting and there's no one left to count. For the saying all my relations in Māori, 
literally translated, we would say, Oku Fanona Katoa. All my relations. With the Lushootseed speakers, we are seeing a language program at work. Let's acknowledge that learning anything is hard. How many of us say that we wish we could speak Italian? And the answer is, well, then go to Italy. Obviously, there are multiple roadblocks, such as colonization, that keep us from being able to enter into a fluent indigenous space, let alone even have the foundations intact. All of us have to grapple with the part of ourselves that is going to dedicate itself to our ancestral languages. Sometimes we might even ask ourselves, why? The majority of the people that I encounter on Turtle Island are going to speak English. So then why? Why suffer through an academic pursuit of language learning? I've been asking many elders this question as I've traveled throughout Indian country. Recently, I was in Oklahoma for Project 562, and I got to meet with one of my favorite aunties, Dr. Henrietta Mann from the Cheyenne Nation. I called her on the phone, and I said, Auntie Henry, why do we need to speak our language? And her answer was so good. I immediately turned the RV around, drove back to Weatherford, Oklahoma, so I could record her and share it with you. (laughs) It's because her answer goes straight to the heart of it all, and it's summarized so well. I'm so excited you got to talk with Dr. Mann. She is the queen of indigenous education, the originator of indigenous academic reform. Uh, She started tribal colleges. She worked at Berkeley, at Montana State University, at Harvard, at Haskell Indian Nations University. She is so badass. I just say that in the Cheyenne language, my name is Prayer Cloth Woman, or the woman who comes to offer prayer. I am named for my paternal grandmother, and I am very happy always to see you, to have you come to see me, and, and you just bring me a lot of happiness. We know that the state of indigenous languages is is in a dangerous place. And I also know that you're one of very few Cheyenne speakers left, especially here in Oklahoma. And so if you could relate to our young people why you think it's important for us to speak the language, uh, I I think that would be really useful for our people. As it goes with us older people, when we're asked a question, we go back essentially to the beginning of time when our worlds were first created and we were given the sacred breath of life to utilize in making sounds and eventually to to making words of communication, to seeing our sounds, to 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 be able to utilize that sacred breath of life to communicate with others. And uh, that creation goes clear back into our very, very dim memory of thousands, millions, whatever time it was when when we were first created created as a people, the people, the people alike, 
the people that have the same kind of hearts, who share the same language, the same views of the world, the same traditions, who walk this road of life together. And when Mahil, the Creator, brought our world into existence and made us, it is said that he, she, an androgynous being, called the winds from the four directions to, to come give us the breath of life so that we could learn to make sounds and to, and to utilize our words. We were given our first languages by the winds in utilizing what their gift to us as individuals. So we have carried those languages and, and those traditions and our ways of life for an exceptionally long period of time as we have walked this earth, making our journey around earth. And many, many generations have walked this land before us, and there will be many who will walk it after us. When we were given life, we were given certain responsibilities, and, and with or without saying, it's just implied one of the, our, our charges in life was to keep our languages alive. The way we speak, to articulate the way we think and look at the world, the way we live as a peoples, we might call our ways of life cultures, and uh, it really needs to be understood and re-emphasized that you cannot have language without culture and that you really must have a culture to have a language. Those two aspects of our ways of being are exceptionally important because you cannot have one without the other. When we, when we lose our cultures or they go into cultural disarray, that affects our languages and vice versa. If we do not have our language and there's no culture, what do we express? And so language and culture are, are interchangeable but necessary for each other. And so that uh, it has been our responsibility as succeeding generations uh, of Cheyenne people to make sure that we know our language and that we do our best to make sure that this knowledge is passed on to the coming generations. So we stand between the, the past and the future in terms of carrying out the purposes for which we were put on earth. And I, sometimes it's stated very simply. I look at my reason for being on this earth as nothing more than, than being a good Cheyenne with all that that implies linguistically, culturally, traditionally, in terms of our value systems, and, and always keeping the profound and, and exceptionally phenomenal teachings of our ancestors alive. Well, we know what happened in 1492 when this land became known to others in another part of the world, and the invasion began. And unfortunately, in the kinds of ways of life that those who came to live with us uh, brought with them, 
there was a, an emphasis upon their way of education completely disrespectful and unknowledgeable, not knowing that we too had our education traditions and our languages that, that have existed for all time for us. And in the new schools then that were established on this land, our homeland, which we call an island, Manhaf, those individuals that came to share this beautiful land with us brought their, their ways of viewing the world characterized by what we know as manifest destiny or cultural imperialism. But in that process, then, as generations of our, of our young Cheyennes were placed in those educational schools, everything about us as a people's was demeaned and looked down upon. Our ways were not any good. We had, we had to be rid of them. The way we dressed, we had to be rid of them. The length that we wore our hair came into question, and, then, and, and haircuts began to proliferate. But above them all, our languages wore the frontal assault of assimilation. Our languages, once, once the schools, the new schools that these uh, the spider white people, as we call them, uh, brought to this country and established to completely supplant our uh, competency-based <laughs> educational plan, uh, educational systems that we had uh, developed and educated our young people. They bore that the frontal assault of assimilation, although everything else about us was to be to be put away, to be thrown away, essentially, in, in those schools. And I'm sure you've often seen photographs of students that, that uh, arrived at Carlisle Indian School in full regalia with lawn hair. Uh, and then after photographs of those same individuals with haircuts and in modern uh, dress and their military uniforms or their tight-fitting dresses and, and um, the, those photographs themselves certainly the before and after are very tragic but what have has always impressed me in looking at them is how beautiful we are as a people beautiful 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 people uh, and, and we still are. We have those same beautiful hearts. But because our languages then bore the frontal assault of assimilation, um, and that has been an occurrence over, over the recent generations, and there was an erosion, a very quick erosion upon our languages. And in 1991, when I went through our, we call it Mahiwanhayam, more commonly known as a Sundance, but it's a lodge of new life to us. When I went through the ceremonies on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation in Montana and, and my younger brother and I sponsored the ceremony, they were insistent that no one could pledge the Sundance unless they spoke Cheyenne. Being from the South, the the warrior societies who were at that time uh, 
going to set the date for the ceremony, called me in. <laughs> they gave me essentially a language test. It wasn't really a test as such. They asked me some questions to, to see whether or not I, I, I spoke their language well enough to become a, um, the woman pledger to the Sundance, which was held on the white dirt uh, property, the only piece of land on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation that had not been uh, leased for development of one type or another. And so my younger brother, who's Vernon Suptis, and I sponsored that Sundance in 1991 on the White Dirt property uh, between Busby, Montana, and Lane Deer. And, uh, and so I, I have a closeness with, with my brother. We, we shared that, that walk together and have since. And he and I talk by telephone. We visit one another. We, we even utilize emails today. And um, in one of our conversations, he said, you know, sister, and, and, and actually my, my family calls me sister mama, which is like I'm the oldest of our generation. And as such, as the oldest sister, I'm also their mother figure. He said, sister mama, I've been having this dream. He said, and it's really bothersome, he said. And I had it again last night, but I believe I understood what it means. He said, in my dream, we were in ceremony. And we were going through the sacred rituals within the lodge. But there was something that was not right. I dreamed that one night. I dreamed it another night. And I dreamed it again. And he said, and, and I believe it was the third, third night, the third time that I dreamed this because I knew I was being shown something. I was being told something. He said, I finally understood. He said, because there was a, 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 a sacred voice that spoke to me. Must have been one of our spirit uh, beings. He said, talk to me in Cheyenne and told me, he said, we've been watching you all over the years. He said, and you are doing what we know is a Sundance ceremony. We see you go through the motions. We see you make the altars. We see the woman carrying the buffalo skull and we see what you're doing. And so we know you must be having the Sundance, but we no longer understand what you say because and rather being, uh, as time went on, the language within the lodge was English. He said, and so, so we know, we know what you're doing. We, we just assume that you are continuing to, to observe our ceremonies and carry out your responsibility to earth, to maintain your responsibilities, uh, to renew our, our grandmother, the earth, but we no longer know what you're no longer know what you're saying. We don't understand you. And so, sister, he said, we're going to have to really concentrate on teaching our language if, to our children, but especially those that go into ceremony. 
because they have to hear us as well. They need to hear our prayers, he said, because you know that we have been taught that when you say your prayers in Cheyenne, just like my little brother Victor did when he, when he opened uh, this our, our, our gathering. Uh, they hear us. They hear us speak in our languages because those were the languages that, that, that uh, were given to us in terms of communication. This week, I was able to attend the end-of-the-year celebration for Makayasak Wiku, the Wampanoag Language Immersion School in Mashpee, Massachusetts. The story of the Wampanoag language is one that we want to end the episode with because it is a story of so much struggle, but also so much hope. Prior to a decade or so ago, the Wampanoag language was sleeping. There hadn't been a speaker for over 150 years. But through the incredible work of Jesse Little Doe Baird, along with other tribal members and academic linguists like Ken Hale, the language was reconstructed using written documents and neighboring languages. Today, there is a growing community of speakers and an immersion school serving 25 students from preschool through early elementary school. I can't even tell you how emotional and powerful it was for me to be at the celebration and see the little ones speaking Wampanoag with such ease and pride and to think of how proud their families and ancestors are of them. I talked with some of the teachers and students of Makayasuk Wiku about their school, their language, and what it means to be Wampanoag. And we hope that their story can be one that we remember and find hope in as we move forward. It's such an incredible story, isn't it, Adrian? It blows my mind when I think about it. Like, that I sat there and listened to 25 children speak a language that had been sleeping for 150 years Mm -hmm. and like that they understand it so easily and like they were responding to the teachers like speaking to them just in Wampanoag and stuff it was incredible and beautiful they sang us a bunch of songs and said prayers and (laughs) were all in their little powwow regalia it was amazing and so cute Mm mm-hmm it's something so powerful like that wells up inside of you when you see like the like resurgence of culture and the the way that it's like you can witness somebody growing roots like the magic of being deeply implanted into their into their place you know it's like every time our canoes land on our shores in the northwest and the people stand in the front of the canoe and they ask for permission to come ashore and it's babies, you know, like teenage babies. And they they say it in their language and they say it like with so much pride and conviction. It just, it, I don't know, I, I can't describe the feeling, but it makes me feel so hopeful. There's something about young people speaking an indigenous language that makes me feel like everything is going to be okay. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> especially since our work can be so discouraging, you know, like you, like especially for you, like in academia, it's like you do this work over and over and over again. Like I know for myself, like I go and give these talks over and over and over again, and we publish these articles over and over and over again. And it feels like we're sort of shouting from the rooftops 
Um, and sometimes it, it gets exhausting and you, and you think like, is this really, is this really working? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then you see something like that and, 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 it, and it's like, oh, okay, this is going to be all right. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when I was in, um, in Aquasasne and, um, I was sitting next to Tommy Porter and Tommy Porter had told me the story of the Freedom School. And the Freedom School is an immersion school in Mohawk country. And um, he had told me how, you know, like similar to many other places, how in order to become citizens, they had to give documents to the priest that said that um, that they had reformed their ways, that they wouldn't speak their language, they would, you know, stop being so savage-like, and they had to burn their gastoas and the burn ban in front of the church before they could, before they could even go in to get their citizenship papers signed, you wow. know. So, like, this was the church policy in this place and the citizenship policies. And so he said, you know, like, people were afraid; they didn't want to speak their language. People didn't want to come to the longhouse. People wanted to survive, you know, and live a healthy life. And they knew that to do so, they had to put those things to sleep. And so he said in the 70s, when they decided that they were going to start the Freedom School, nobody wanted to come, you know, like that. That they said, we're going to build a longhouse and we're going to teach Mohawk. And people looked at him like he was crazy. You know, why would you want to do something like that? And so it was really a group of families, like a, a, a few moms and their babies that started this freedom school. And he said they started having ceremonies in the longhouse and only half a dozen people would come and only a few people could speak the language and lead the ceremony. No young people could do it. And so anyways, I was, at, I was out there for the reading of the Great Law of Peace and I went to one of their socials in the nighttime and I was sitting next to Tommy Porter, and, and I looked at him as, like, these kids were lining up to come into the longhouse. And, Adrian, there was a line out the door of young men preparing to bring this, you know, like, sort of do that. You know how they do, like, ah, oh, hey, ah, oh, hey, ah, oh, hey, ah, oh, hey. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, how they come into the, you know, and these boys are doing this song. And there was like, I don't know, maybe a hundred of them. And then a hundred young girls that went scurrying in between them. And um, the ceremony was done, like, or the social, the language that was being spoken by the the speakers in the longhouse was all done in the language. And it it seemed as though most people there understood what was being said. And he was just so happy. I remember him just like crying these tears of joy and and, um, that acknowledgement, you know, like that that there can be a shift in culture, just like it was taken away, so can it be rebirthed and revitalized. That's like, that's so beautiful. That's what I think about when I hear that Wampanoag story. Absolutely. It makes me feel good. Natasari Sanashtia Pocknet, Nuto Mas Masipia Kamigamaat, Natai Masipiet. Nushai Asuisu Paul Avert I Kanuka Masai Asuisu Hannah Peters Averett. Um Yeah, so I, my name is Tia Pocknett and I live in Mashpee. I'm from Mashpee. I'm Mikama. Um, I represent my father, um, Paul Averett, and my grandmother, um, Hannah Peters Averett. And here I work at Makayasak Wiku with children ages three through six in the primary house, which is called Makayasak Wiku.
And could you just tell us briefly the story of Wampanoag language and how, like, the journey that it has come to to this point? I know it's not a brief story, but <laughs> I don't want to take too much of your I time. I guess, like, shorthand version is that, you know, colonizers came over um, and they colonized the people here and forced English. Um, and, you know, we had people who could still speak, who still spoke their language, but how to do it in secret because, you know, speaking Wampanoag was against the law in Massachusetts. So there was like kind of like an underground like cohort of people and it's probably like over 150 years ago, like we our last speaker actually died. So um, our founder of our project, Jesse Little Doe Baird, actually went back to school and looked at the, um, the Elliott Bible and work, worked hard with a, a lot of people. Ken Hale from MIT, Norvin, um, and even with um, tribal people here like Natana, um, Melanie, Roderick, these people all came together and, you know, they worked really hard to try to bring the language back. Jesse spent a lot of time, you know, creating, working, um, and building a dictionary. And, you know, she started the master apprentice with like all of us ladies. And, um, we've just, I feel like I've been learning language for over a decade now. Um, so, I mean, we got, we had to build up our, all our speakers. Once we had all our speakers, um, at a certain level, we just said, you know, it's time to open up a school because now it needs to come back to the children. And we always knew that if we taught our children, they will still carry us because, you know, one of the things that I always think about is when I'm in that classroom, I'm not just teaching children. I'm actually teaching the elders because one day they're going to grow up and they're going to be the elders of the language. They're going to hold that language at an elder status and they'll be more fluent than any of us. So, you know, it, to me, it's always an honor that I'm working with them because they really hold the future of our language. And why was it important for you to learn the language? What was it that brought you to the language process? I guess like in my early 20s, I've always just been, you know, like I grew up in Mashpee, I went fishing, I went, you know, berry picking and all, you know, danced at powwows. Um, and I guess like there was always kind of like more of a deeper, like, who are you? Who are you? And I remember, you know, taking my first language class and just thinking like, this is amazing. Like this is, this is important. And then once you actually start to learn your language, you're actually realizing, wow, there's like hidden like teachings and, you know, a real like thought process of how our ancestors thought. It's not like, you know, in English we think different, like, you know, we think certain things, but like how we would think in Wampanoag would be totally different, a totally different mindset. So I guess like that was like a deeper like, oh my goodness, here is the key to like all your traditions, all your culture, like why aren't you diving head first? And that, that's just what I did. I was just like, you know, and I want to make sure that, you know, my son who was actually there um, at the award ceremony today, you know, he can speak his language and that's important, you know, to make sure that that continues on. Um, I was going to ask you about your son and what you hope for him. Uh, what do you hope that he learns through learning the language? So my son, he is, um, he just turned seven. He is in Miss Vonnie's classroom, which is, the, we just pilot the lower elementary. And my son actually was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. When he first came to the school, his speech wasn't 
anywhere. I mean, I was told the public school, like, yeah, he's going to need an iPad to talk. He's um, not just don't have high hopes. And to me, I was like, "Mm, no, like he has so much potential and bringing him here. And because he's learning a second language, it's really helped his brain stretch those muscles to, you know, now he goes around saying, you know, hola amigos, like, and he's really geared. He likes Spanish or he, he listens to, you know, his father um, sometimes speaks French with him so that he's learning how to say, you know, I'm probably going to mess this up. Bonjour, mes amis. Like, you know, hello, friends. And then, you know, he knows how to say that in Wampanoag. To even starting to learn other indigenous languages like uh, Mi'kmaq, where every night now he says Kisalol. And his actual, his speech, the, like the amount of words that he says in a sentence, it has grown from being like three word sentences to now like seven to 10 word sentences. So that's a huge growth for him. And also too, like, I mean, it's just, I, I feel that when our children hear their language, there's just like this force that just drives them to it. And they're just like, they're speaking something different and you know, they have their own pride to it too. So, you know, and what gives you hope about the whole process of bringing back the language? we all come to our um, language destiny on however we come to it. Um, And I always believe, you know, not trying to make people feel certain ways when they come to language because the fact that they're even showing up is a big deal, you know? And I mean, if you learn one word or if you learn how to, you know, write a whole new book, a chapter book in your language, both are amazing. And I think that people coming back to that and, you know, the idea of trying to decolonize themselves and knowing that at the very helm of decolonizing yourself starts with learning your language. Knowing that it's okay to not do the colonized thing, to like invest in decolonizing, invest in, you know, I don't have to do it this way. You know, I had my son in public school and like I said, once I just saw like what they were doing to him, I was like, you know, as a tribal person, knowing that like our children's spirits are so important and our children in general are so important. They're like legit the gifts from the creator. And it's our purpose as parents to lead them on a track that is going to guide them and guide their spirit. And when I saw that the public school was not doing that for my son, I knew that I had to take him out. So I think that, you know, knowing that if you feel that it's if you feel like what you're doing isn't connecting to your spirit and you hear that calling, then awaken and do what you feel like you have to do. Well, thank you, Wado. And how do you say thank you in, in Wampanoag? Katapatash. Katapatash. Okay, speak on to me. Okay, can you tell me what your name is? Zola. Zola. And what tribe are you from? I'm from the Wampanoag. Mashpee tribe. Kids can't go in there until And what is your favorite part about being Wampanoag? My favorite part is be, uh, being Wampanoag is being jingle. <laughs> Perfect. Do you want to sing a song in Wampanoag for us? Yes. Pasak ni snash, yao napana, nakwaton. Nisansanash wonsak, pasakugin payakwea heyo. Oh.
Oh my gosh, Zola, so precious. Oh, I don't think I could ever get tired of the sound of little Indian babies singing their songs. Oh, (laughs) well, folks, this is already an epic episode and we have so much more content we want to share with you. So for our Patreon subscribers, we'll put up a few more short conversations for you to hear from our Cheyenne relatives discussing language revitalization. And this topic could be explored for like a hundred more episodes. We could interview folks in Anishinaabe territories and Seminole. We could go with, visit our Kanakamali Punanaleo students. We could head up to Alaska, go to California and everywhere in between. And so we want to acknowledge and recognize that this is an ongoing conversation and that there is so much we didn't and couldn't cover, but we hope that you'll look to your own communities and see what amazing work is going on there. Our languages need our attention. Our grandmas want us to learn from them so that there can come a time when we all have an awakened resurrection story to tell so we can all be a little more jingle. Huge wado thank you to Tia Averett Pocknett, Siobhan Vonnie Brown, Sola Santos, Adeline and Wesley Greenbeer, Eliana Russo, and Jen Weston from Makayasuk Wiku, Amber Hayward and Archie Cantrell from Puyallup, Harry and Sidelta Asui, Dr. Henrietta Mann, and all of the other incredible folks that we talked to for this episode. Yes, like Grandma Thelma Whiskers at the beginning of the episode, who reminded us to talk to the bears. Oh, and like our listeners who called in and told us how to say all my relations in their language. Receiving your message was truly the coolest. We hope all of you will continue to call in and leave us a voice recording on our website. It's just so cool to get to share your words on this episode. Huge, huge thank you to our editor extraordinaire, Teo Shantz, and to Sierra Sana for our gorgeous episode art. This episode, we're thrilled to have music by Sichangu Lakota rapper and composer Frank Wan. He's all famous and fancy, so we're really grateful for you, Frank. Thank you. If you have music that you'd be willing to let us use in a future episode, please just send us an email. We're also in the process of trying to find funding for season two. If you have any resources, grants, or funding that you think we should look into, please let us know. And remember to like, comment, share, and subscribe on iTunes. We're also on Instagram at AMR Podcasts, and our website is allmyrelationspodcast.com. Good day, you. All my relations.